show. I'm your host, Mike, and welcome to Amateur All Tours. I'm really excited to announce a new segment for the show, guys. Along with our regular views and first impressions, I'm adding a segment titled, What Am I Missing? This segment will focus on films in my collection that I either haven't gotten around to watching yet, or uh, these films I've seen but I've never finished, and those are the general uh, guidelines for right now. Uh, the inception of this kind of came recently, um, as you know, frequent listeners know, I have a growing collection that I've had since I was, you know, 13 or 14 years old, and, you know, I was looking around it, and there are quite a few films that I, you know, haven't seen yet, and that kind of struck me, because they're, because I'm not really a big, you know, proponent of, you know, buying films for the sake of just, you know, having them in the collection. Every film that I buy, I, you know, enjoy in some capacity, and, you know, I want to enjoy them. And so, the fact that there are films in the collection that I haven't uh, seen yet kind of, uh, you know, struck a struck a certain chord with me. So I wanted to, you know, try and remedy to that. And, you know, it's just kind of hard, you know, finding time to, you know, watch the films and stuff. So I got the idea for this segment. So it gives me that newfound motivation to actually watch them. And also, you know, gives content for you guys and, um, and the show. So think of these as solo reviews, except they are probably a more real-time and genuine response. But there is a bit of research behind, you know, each uh, episode. So... What is the first episode? Well, as you can probably tell by the episode title, episode one will focus on 12 Angry Men 1957. So, I wanted to pick a film that was, you know, a bit unique and may get some attention. Uh, as I was talking in our um, episode with Dana, that's how I found new episodes is of podcasts, is, you know, looking up different movies that I don't think a lot of people really talk about. And uh, so, I tried to think of a film that may get some uh, attention like that, but also one that I feel like isn't really talked about enough. Um, so, as I do for all of our reviews, let me tell you guys about my personal history slash connection with uh, this story in particular. Now, I say story because I had seen the play in high school my senior year. That was around, you know, five, four or five years ago at this point, and I was around 17 or 18, and at this point in my life, I was really starting to get interested into watching theater and the behind-the-scenes of how theater performances are put together. Um, that, that, that always was something that, you know, I was never a theater kid, but, you know, the intricacy and, you know, attention that needs to go, and, you know, stage performances always um, amaze me, and that especially as I get older and I watch, you know, uh, at, at my college, watching the college films and, you know, professional plays, like how, how people can, can, you know, go on stage for anywhere from two to three, maybe four hours and just, you know, memorize all this dialogue. And that's just something that really interest, interested uh, in me. So getting back to uh, 12 Angry Men, I enjoyed the play uh, conceptually and as a story. So, specifically, when I say conceptually, anytime a story's setting is in one location, I'm really intrigued. Um, and kind of talking, like, really quickly about the film, you know, there are only two shots that aren't in the juror's room. You have that opening establishing shot, which is very distinctive, but I'll get to that later. But, you know, having... And, and then you have the last wide-angle shot. Um, but other than that, everything is in one room. And... 
And the play is also, you know, one location, just very standard, simple stuff. But for my, you know, layman theater mind, this type of story is, is you know, easier to do in theaters because it's cost-efficient and overall extremely practical. There's not a lot of scene or set changes. Now, film, on the other hand, it's, it's obviously not impossible. So uh, you obviously have films like Saw, Breakfast Club, Rear Window, Rope, Dogville, Clerks, and, and many more, but that's just to name a few. And each one, you know, is kind of a case case study or a case-by-case case in that, you know, it's primarily one location, but they do have set changes where it's interesting in this film, it's really just one area. Um, so that single location, it's, it's more difficult to work with, in my opinion, in film. Because, you know, the grand nature of film allows the makers to utilize different techniques. It's not what I call real time. You know, you have editing, you have multiple takes, uh, you know, cued music, camera manipulation, etc. Film, in my opinion, is meant to capture that striking imagination that other mediums can't necessarily grasp. But with that being said, how does 12 Angry Men manage to tell a gripping and compelling story within one location? Well, for one, it's simple. The story focuses around 12 men in one location. Um, it focuses on the trial of an 18-year-old uh, kid accused of murdering his father. Um, and some, I'm going to go over some general notes of the plot and um, before getting into the details. But um, getting into it, the judge, first thing right off the bat, is, seems bored. I got the impression that he thinks he's guilty. Uh, just, the to- just the bored tone and demeanor. Um, asking for reasonable doubt, which is interesting because the audience of this film never knows the truth, if that makes sense. We, we don't have that flashback of who actually killed the father, if, if the, uh, the accused actually had done it. It's just, we never find that out. It's just kind of the conjecture of these men. Another interesting note is that the jurors don't have names, except Henry Fonda's character and the old man at the very end. And so the characters are defined by personality and and wardrobe and also, you know, biases and things like that. Uh, they're, they seem to be just regular guys. And, and it's also interesting is that they seemingly, they don't, it seems like they don't want to know each other. They just kind of want to show up, do their job and leave and just keep all personal connections out of this. And the story really ignites with a 10 to 1 vote of guilty to not guilty. And then the rest is the film. So, 12 Angry Men has a runtime of 96 minutes, and it, it feels extremely short, but not in a bad way. I think an important idea to remember is that the tension comes from the clashing of characters, from the personalities, dialogue, and body language, as well, you know, coupled and paired with the cinematography. And, again, like this movie in general, it's simple, yet extremely effective. You know, you have your long takes and close-ups primarily utilized. The long takes are really for dialogue. And the close-up are for the details, you know, the hands of voting, uh, the old man rebuttal slash test, etc. Uh, really figuring out those details that are really important to the story. Now, now that the general points are, uh, you know, brought up, let's review the finer details. So, point number one is the story. I think it's, um, I think it's interesting is that the audience seems to know just as much as the jurors, in that... Hearing Fonda's claims are as new to us as they are the jurors, and, you know, we may not know the facts of the case yet, but these viewpoints that the jurors are, you know, may not have thought of, and 
it's also fascinating that the audience does not see the trial, as I previously mentioned. Instead, we are only held to the uh, testament and the hearsay of the jurors that were present in the trial. Um, Fonda's character, juror number eight, he never says, I know this to be true. The main, I think if there's any tagline to this movie, it should be, I don't know, but I have reasonable doubt. And this goes through the presentation of the evidence and uh, and Fonda's character trying to kind of attack the prosecution. So, number one, we have the knife as the kill weapon. So, I have three points from this in that he first attacks that the knife is not... that there can be a copy and it's not a... it's not as unique as, you know, the prosecution is saying. And this is, you know, disputed by Fonda having a very similar knife acquired in the same area that the accused was from. Uh, the, also, there was the knife angle wasn't right in that it was too high for the kid, and also there's, like, the not the uh, technique of the stabbing, underhand versus overhand with a, uh, a switchblade. And there's also the motive for the killing was lackluster at best, in that the prosecution was uh, was claiming the motive was that the ch- uh, the accused was being hit by his father and abused for many years, and that this was kind of you know the straw that broke the camel's back. The second point that's attacked is the L train noise coupled with the old man. So there, and so at the time of the murder, there was an, an L train passing by, and there was an old man who the neighbor, the downstairs neighbor, who had claimed that he had seen the uh, the accused running out and saying, well, here saying that I, I I'm gonna kill you, and then running out. So. Fonda's character has this mock, uh, like, setup test, and that the man has a limp, but he apparently made it from his bedroom to the door in 15 seconds, and this test concluded that it was 45 seconds. There was also another point from, um, I think it was juror number 10, who, the old man, who made a long monologue, um, of wanting glory, that this man had done nothing with his life, and this was his moment of glory to like kind of be in the papers and ma- and you know be remembered for something and I, my my thing about this is that it's really conjecture which is kind of the point that uh Ben Shapiro um was making about this film but to counter that sometimes it's not about who's right or wrong but who is the most convincing argument which i think is what's this film's kind of message and take home message uh but you know i digress and the third point of evidence is the woman who saw the murder through the train windows uh, from across the street. Now, Fonda's character, to kind of refute this, was saying that she did not have glasses. And this was going to um, this was the end of the film when most of the jurors had switched their had switched their opinion and the point of no glasses. And this is the point that convinces one of the most strict jurors of possible innocence. So, the like I said, the point of 12 Angry Men is not to answer the question, who committed this crime? This is not a who done it. It's, is this 18-year-old kid innocent or guilty? And a direct quote from the film, we're talking about somebody's life. We can't decide in five minutes, supposing we're wrong. This is countered with, suppose, suppose you, we are right. Which is interesting, because this point is never brought up again, which... It's, I think it's, it's a very, you know, poignant question. Like, well, what if this kid isn't innocent? And I think it's, um, I, I think if I have a, uh, a, a fault with this film, it's that that question is never really utilized ever again, especially by the opposition, because it is a, you know, it's a, it's a fair point, but it's never brought up again. So let's talk about the characters specifically. The characters are defined by preconceived prejudices, background, and occupations. So, 
I tried to do a little test with this. I looked at the IMDb of, you know, the cast and the jurors, and and what I found is matching the face with the with the juror, I wrote down my interpretations of the men. So, juror number one is the organizer and pseudo-leader in that he wants to have the appearance of leading, but it's very clear that Fonda is the leader and he kind of steps down from that. Juror number two, he's mousy, he's the newbie, and he's embodies innocence um he entertains the notions of innocence of the accused uh fairly quickly juror number three he's arrogant and the aggravator he has this overt personal vendetta against the accused because the accused reminds him of his estranged son which ultimately convinces him of a not guilty verdict at the end uh this is this character is the i guess villain if there is one of here um Juror number four is the logic, logical and unemotional uh, stockbroker. Uh, just tries to very, just attack a situation with logic and you know just a natural flow of thought. Juror number five, I have him as just present. He is the slumdog character, you know, kind of. Uh, I don't want to say rags of riches, but kind of worked himself up from the same slums as the accused. Uh, my my interpretation is that he served his pur purpose when needed, so he came in and talked about the knife tactics, underhand versus overhand, and gave a sense of humanity to the uh, accused when the others were viewing him, pretty much as, like, a soulless animal. Um, so I thought that was his purpose. Juror number six, again, I thought he was present. He was just representing the blue-collar, uh, working-class, average Joe, kind of... I don't know, he just, he just seemed to have very baseline morals, uh, but he was the one to suggest, uh, you know, suppose, suppose you, uh, he's actually, uh, guilty. So, I thought that he, he was present. Again, he served a purpose when he needed it. Juror number seven was indifferent about the case. He has, quote-unquote, places to be. Ultimately, he just doesn't care, and I think that's a, you know, a statement of just society in general. Juror number eight, Fonda, voice of lone descent. Juror number nine, old, um, old man, he, he's got the parallel with the old man with the limp in that this guy realizes that his this case is bigger than himself. Uh, juror number 10 is the ra racist and aggravator. Goes on racist, a racist rant at the end. Also want to point out that I was wrong with the old man. I, I meant to say juror number 9 now that I'm looking at this list and not 10, the racist. Juror number 9 is the one who goes on the whole, you know, old man monologue about, you know, not really having much of a purpose in life. Anyway, back to the list. Juror number 11 is the immigrant. Similar to number 5, but he, you know, he has more to say. He serves his purpose, and he is, you know, kind of a, a, push, a pressure uh, to help uh, humanize the accused. And then juror number 10 is the young exec type, exec type mo is the youngest guy there, probably most successful. And this is, this guy is very interesting in my mind, because he is the one that's easily swayed, which is, you know, it's, in the film it's not played as a fault, but he just, like, truly doesn't know what to think, which I think is, you know, adds more tension to the scene. So, out of these 12 men, the only ones that are perceived negative, in my opinion, are jurors 3, 9, and 7, specific, 3 and 9, 3 is obviously the villain, if there has to be one, 9 is just an old man that just is spewing, like, racist nonsense, and number seven is just because he's indifferent. He, his indifference about a life, I think that's why you can maybe perceive him as negative. And I think this film really questions the effectiveness of the judicial system of the United States. Remember, this film stems from a time when people were being wrongfully convicted to the electric chair to death for the faulty or uh, mishandled evidence. So I think that's kind of poignant to remember the time frame of this film, um, and I think it definitely is very 
the themes are still very strong today, especially, you know, um, not to make it political, but with the judicial system um, and the prison system in the United States. I think this is a very interesting uh, parallel that is still, you know, relevant to this day in 2018. Um, so now I want to kind of get away from the story and I want to talk about the technical aspect or the cinematography and the visual style. So Lumet, the directorial uh, debut, very, <laughs> what a way, what a great uh, debut to have into the film world. Um, and, you know, as a legendary director as he was. But direct quote, I wanted to make the room feel smaller as the story progressed. So essentially, he what he had done was that he gradually changed lens and focal lengths to make the background seem to creep up on the surrounding characters. Give this a sense of um, claustrophobia. And the, so, like I said, the, the shots, we have the opening establishing shot. And like I said, this is very distinctive. It's a tracking shot through the courthouse. We have the bustling the area paired with a you know celebration of a married couple. And then we kind of sneak into the courtroom. And the courtroom is completely silent, especially compared to, you know, the bustle of the building. So, in research, I found that the, th the, the first third of the film was shot above eye level. The second third was shot at eye level, and the last th third was shot below eye level. And I'll get into that in a second, but I also think it's important to look at the last shot, in that this is the wide angle in the open world, as the men disperse. Why I think this shot is so powerful in, is, is two reasons. One, it kind of lets us, you know, breathe after this claustrophobic, intense ride. But it also, in the statement it makes, these men were all individuals for the entirety of the film, but then they go into the world as nobodies, and no one will truly know about the decisions that they had to make on that day, uh, and the and like kind of the importance of, you know, they had a they had a an accused they had a man's life in their hand, and they have they elected to go on a not guilty verdict, but after much deliberation, I think that's just a very like interesting nonverbal statement. Um, now I want to focus on the shifting eye level portion. So I think this is very fascinating and interesting because this is where the tension uh, is added to the film because it it gradually engages the audience more and more. So the first third, above eye level, the audience is merely watching the events start to unfold. Like we're just kind of, you know, flies on the wall, passive observers, just watching the story. And then the second, we, you know, we, we drift down at eye level, and that, it, this engages the audience. We, as the audience, are suddenly a juror in the mix. And you start to question, you, you hear everyone, you start to questioning, you know, you know, the evidence that is given forth, and you, and we all, you know, as the jurors, we have our own preconceived prejudices and, you know, ideals and ideologies, so now it's engaging us as an, as an audience, and now the third, uh, the third, or the last section of the film, below eye level, this is the most tension in the film, and it's still engaging us, but not on the level of, you know, we're one of the jurors. Now it's, it's, uh, jurors number eight, Fonda, and number three are in full swing. These are two opposing colliding forces, and for completely different reasons. And there's also a sense of fluidity and movement to the characters throughout the film. Um, it's very technical and a great use of pan in and pan out, and like I said, close-ups for, you know, the details of the film, you know, the hands, writing, uh, things like that, the um, the whole test and the uh, rebuttal of the uh, old man's uh, testimony. And also, with the pan in and pan out, um, with the long monologues, always it's, it's such it's such a great way to immerse. So, those are pretty much my thoughts on the film. Uh, 
it's it's a very simple film, so I feel like I don't really have you know too much in depth you know analysis other than uh, what what I presented. But I want to have my closing thoughts before the recommendations. You know, superb acting, excellent cinematography, and an amazing screenplay. Everything really works and flows in this film. There's definitely that ebb and flow, and it's just you know. It's a shame that it took me this long to get to this movie, because it's a completely enthralling experience. So, onward to the recommendation. I'm going to give 12 Angry Men a 9 out of 10. This is a film that people really should not miss out on, and, you know, I'm, I'm super glad that I was able to finally get around to it. And now, for this segment only, I'm toying around with an additional rating system. Like I said, only for what I'm missing. And it is appropriately named, What Am I Missing?, so, the three levels for right now are skip it, could have waited, need to see it. I know it's kind of a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's going to be effective and just, and, you know. So, for 12 Angry Men, I'm going to give it a need to see it. It, it. This, like I said before in my closing thoughts, this is a film that I think everyone needs to see in general. It, it's, it's, a very, it's, it's a very concrete way and just an awesome example of, you know, act, uh, just, you know, a character studies, and very simple, yet very effective camera movement and cinematography, and everything just works, so definitely need to see it, if you haven't seen it, go for it, I, I really think, like, I, I was missing out, I definitely was missing out from not seeing this, so with that, this concludes this episode of Amateur All Tours, I hope you guys really um, enjoyed this new segment, because I certainly did, it's giving me a newfound motivation to actually get around to films that I probably should have seen at this point. But, you know, either way, thank you for giving us a listen. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes and keep on watching. See you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amateur All Tours. Cover design was created by Sarah Jacobs. You can find more of her work at her own website, Digital Adventures. The opening theme, Dreams, is composed by Joachim Karid. This composition was found using a Creative Commons search. As a small plug, go check out both Sarah and Joachim's work. They're really great and deserve the attention. If you want to drop us a line, which we full-heartedly support, please feel free to contact us at our email, theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that is one word. You can also find us at Twitter at amateuraltourspod. Once again, thank you for supporting the show. Stay tuned for more episodes, and thank you once again.